turn with me in your New Testaments to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll begin there in a moment. It's a joy to be with you this morning. It was such an enjoyable thing to be able to study that this morning about the joy of our salvation. We have much to rejoice in because of what Jesus did for us. And as we just gave time to singing about, we have much to be thankful for. We just celebrated that holiday of Thanksgiving. We've enjoyed time with family and friends and and remembering what God has done for us. I hope that you've had a good week. I know that my family and I have, and it's just all that more uh, wonderful uh, to be able to gather today and thank God for more of what we have in Him and to be able to study His Word and partake of it further. So I hope that as I lead you through this study that it can be beneficial to you, that we can learn a lot and become better Christians for it. I think we're all familiar with the name C.S. Lewis, and there's a quote that I'd like to read that he made. He said in his um, paper or his speech called The Weight of Glory that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals that we joke with, that we work with, and that we marry and snub and exploit. He was emphasizing the transformative process of the Christians and the fact that they have a weight of glory that is waiting for them. And that they bear the image of Christ, but not in a way that people realize. And he emphasized at the end of that particular speech the need to treat our fellow man accordingly. They're not mere mortals. We're all immortals. We all bear the image of God. And we need to treat each other accordingly. And I want to emphasize that as we get into the lesson this morning. There are no ordinary, mere mortal men, but immortals. That's true for me, and that's true for you, and that's true for the people sitting next to you, and it's true for everyone who is out there in the world. And you know, really what being a Christian is about is trying to transcend our mortal existence and to emphasize and highlight and live accordingly to that immortal part of our being, that part that bears the image of God. And this is what Paul exhorted the Galatians to do in chapter 5 of that epistle. In verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. All those things that have to do with the mortal existence, they've crucified them. They're not living for that anymore. So he exhorts them, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That's what we're really talking about when we're talking about spiritual growth. It is coming into the greater sense of reality that you are a soul. We are a spirit who have a body. We're not a body with a spirit. We need to make sure we get that in the correct order. And we need to live our lives accordingly. And that's what being a Christian is. It's it's about being born again into that spiritual relationship with God, starting anew to where we can actually live life the way God created us to live it. Not as an animal but as an immortal being that is here for just a little while and is going to spend eternity in one of two spiritual places. And we need to live like that. That's what we're trying to do as we follow Christ. But you know it doesn't happen overnight. We're we're not immediately 
changed into the image of Christ that we are intended to reach. We are immediately changed. We are dead in sin and then we are alive in Christ. The Apostle Peter speaks though in his epistle, as do all the other New Testament writers, about that being a process. There there are stages, if you will. It's an ongoing growth that we're to be involved in. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, he tells them that they have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word which lives and abides forever. You've been born again. And then he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, to lay aside these sinful things and as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You're still a baby. You need to grow. You're, You're not a mature Christian yet. You are a Christian. You are different. Things have changed for the better. But you're not where you're supposed to be. Not even yet. So grow by the milk of the Word. And then he ends that first epistle in 1 Peter 5 and verse 10 by giving this encouragement. May the God of all grace who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That is a word which connotes maturity. May God bring us to a greater maturity. And so we've changed and we're babes in Christ now. We're in Christ. We're Christians but we're supposed to grow. We're not where we're supposed to be when we come up out of the waters of baptism. We've just started that race. We've just started that walk. We've started in that direction. And at any given point of our lives, we're really not where we're supposed to be. We're always progressing to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4 says that perfect man. That's what we're looking forward to. And that's what we're working toward each and every day. Constantly transcending this carnal state, this this mortal state of existence. We're not worried about the things of the flesh. That's not our emphasis. That's not what we live for. We've crucified those passions and desires and we've given ourselves into the reign of Christ. We're in His kingdom. And it is a constant struggle to kill those old passions and desires. To remind ourselves daily that that's not really what this is all about. That's not who we are. And we need to think more about what we can't see, but what we read about in the Scriptures. That's walking by faith, 2 Corinthians 5 says, and not by sight. It's a process. This is why Paul said in Romans 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Why? Because that's conforming to this thought process, this mindset of of carnality and mortality, that you're just a man. That's all you are. You're, You're a part of animal life. You're nothing more. Don't be conformed to that way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a process. It's it's not immediate upon baptism. Baptism is you've understood some eternal truths and you've acted on them being convicted by them. You have become a new creature, but you're an infant. And you don't know as much as one who has been a Christian for 20 years. You don't know as much as perhaps the one that taught you and led you to Christ but you've started that race. you started that process. You still have a lot of the same baggage you had before. You still have a lot of the same ways of reasoning and thinking through things. There are a lot of things that are absolutely wrong and sinful that you don't know are wrong and sinful yet. And there's a lot to do with spirituality and service of Christ that you don't comprehend yet. And it's not held against you, but it's supposed to be grown out of. That's the process, a transforming of our mind. We're not thinking the same anymore. A renewing of the mind, which leads to a transformation of life. We're not living anymore. We don't look the same anymore. We don't act the same anymore. And I want to impress you with a case study in 1 Corinthians 3. 
of some people who had started that walk. They were changed and became Christians. They were born again. But they remained in that state of mere mortals. They did not take efforts to transcend that previous state of living, that previous state of thinking that led to all of these characteristics of sinfulness that they needed a salvation from. And I want to be impressed by the fact that it is needed, growth is needed. We need to grow out of this carnality, out of this mere mortal state of thought and action and living into this greater state of fellowship with God and realizing who we are called to be. And I want us to see what remaining a babe actually looks like. You're a babe in Christ, but you never grow out of that state. And then the danger of it. We need to be impressed by our need to grow in spiritual things. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians in verse 1, he says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are so carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not carnal? I want us to notice first this contrast that he draws in this section of Scripture between what is described as carnal and what is described as spiritual. And he doesn't start it here in chapter 3. We'll get to that. But he starts it all the way back in chapter 1, progresses through chapter 2, and then hits them with the application in chapter 3. He's contrasting the carnal and the spiritual, but it is in the context of one who would receive God's wisdom, delight in it, and walk in it and one who would reject God's wisdom and thus live like a mere mortal, like a carnal man, a mere man. In chapter 2, and verse 13, he says, speaking of this revelation of the Spirit, you can't, can't know God's mind without His Spirit revealing His mind to you. So he says, as an apostle, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things to spiritual. And, and the idea is comparing spiritual Thoughts with spiritual words, as the New American Bible, as Standard Bible renders it. And so here are the thoughts of God. They're spiritual thoughts. You can't know them unless they're revealed to you. But God didn't give that as a, as a project for a mere man to do by himself, but He inspired these men with the exact words to convey without any mistake the exact spiritual thoughts of God. That's revelation. But I want us to notice what He says in verse 14 about that important revelation meant for all men. He says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And he gives the reason, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so he speaks about this natural man, which he'll start using the term carnal in chapter 3, but that's really what we're talking about. This contrast of the carnal and the spiritual as it relates to our reaction to the revelation of God. And so in verse 13, 14, when he talks about this natural man, he's talking about this man who is merely operating on worldly wisdom, so he does not want this spiritual revelation. And you notice what he said before in verse 12, he said, we have received not the Spirit of the world, similarly to what he said in verse 13, but the Spirit of God, or who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So we're not operating from this worldly wisdom where the philosophers 
reason and the disputer's reason and, and all of these man's religions and philosophies and an age of philosophy that they lived in. That's not where this came from. The truths we preached to you at the beginning when you obeyed and became a Christian, and even now, it's never come from man's wisdom. It's come from the wisdom of God. This is God talking through us. And He says that the natural man can't receive the things from God. And He says it's because they're foolishness to Him. And so He rejects revelation based on His worldly wisdom and evaluating the message of the cross through that worldly mindset. And it doesn't make sense to Him. In fact, it's nonsense to Him. It's foolishness to Him. This was not the first time He brought that foolishness up that men think about the message of the cross. In verse 18 of chapter 1, He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. In verse 20 of that same chapter, He challenges, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, for it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So they can't get it because they're seeking knowledge of the Creator. They're seeking knowledge of salvation through worldly wisdom. And and God's basically, you know, ironically boasting to them. You can't figure me out through these ways. It's impossible to know who created you and what He's all about and what you're supposed to be as His creation without listening to Him. And you're trying to figure it out on your own terms and that's why you're rejecting what I'm revealing to you. And that's exactly how He intended it to be. It requires humility for us to acknowledge that it's not within ourselves to know Him. He has to show Himself to us. That's the contrast. Here's the natural man. It's not that he's incapable, it's that he doesn't want it. And he doesn't want it because he is thinking like a mere man. He's not thinking like a man that has a soul. He's not thinking about eternal things. He's not thinking about things that aren't seen. He's just simply thinking about the world as we know it, and it's causing him to misunderstand and therefore reject on the basis of this thought, it's foolishness, an eternal message that could save him. That's the natural man. And the spiritual man then is opposite. It's the one who operates on this revelation. He says in chapter 2, in verse 14, that the natural man can't know these things because they're spiritually discerned. So you can't read the Bible and understand it if you're reading it and approaching it like a textbook pertaining to secular matters, is what he's saying. That's why the natural man doesn't get it. He's not thinking through it spiritually. They're spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. So when a man is spiritually minded, he's thinking through the spiritual lens, he is able to judge not just the matters of the gospel, but the entire world in their proper place and with their proper value. And so an individual who has worldly wisdom rejects this idea that we leave all and follow Christ because that's foolishness. It doesn't make sense to him. But a spiritually discerning person is able to receive the revelation to sacrifice all for Christ because he knows when I sacrifice, I'll actually gain all. You may not see it, but that's because you have to be thinking spiritually to see it. And so anybody who operates from a worldly physical, merely mortal perspective is not going to be able to comprehend or make any sense of the gospel. Even if they want to, if they're thinking from that perspective, they won't. But if you have the mind of Christ, you can. And that comes from this revelation. And so this contrast between carnal and spiritual is not not a contrast between the Hitlers of this world and those who are here in this building we need to make sure we're not that polarizing with the thought. It's, it's not as simple as that. There, there are 
stages like with anything else. We could become those who are natural and carnal in this regard, which is why we're studying this this morning. We need to make sure we're not. And so the spiritual one, he understands that it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. And it's greater than this this philosophical wisdom of man. And so he receives it. But I want us to notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 6. He says, however, still in this contrast of carnal and spiritual, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. I want us to be impressed by what he doesn't say in verse 6. He does not say we speak wisdom among those who are Christians. He doesn't say it. He's not saying that all Christians are able to comprehend, digest, and act on this wisdom. He's actually stating the opposite, which is where we'll get in chapter 3. He says we speak that wisdom of God to those who are mature. And it's the same as the context states about those who are spiritual. The spiritual man receives the revelation of God. The natural man can't because he's thinking about it through a worldly lens. The spiritual man is concerned with the spiritual things, receives the spiritual things, and that spiritual mindset develops into a maturity to understand the deeper things of God. We speak wisdom to those who are mature, he says. You know, there's a parallel passage to many of these sections in 1 Corinthians 2 in Hebrews, the fifth chapter. In Hebrews chapter 5, when the Hebrew writer speaks about Melchizedek and he's wanting to talk about that, he kind of has this, 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 uh, this section that shows why they weren't able to comprehend this before. And then he goes on to talk about it further. But he says in verse 12, By this time you ought to be teachers, for you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Notice this, the difference between one who is a babe and one who is mature, and in our case, one who may be natural and one who is spiritual. Everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word, word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And that's not just discerning between, okay, murder is wrong, and caring for your neighbor is right. But good and evil as it pertains to our study of God's Word. People twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. That's what a babe in Christ will do if we try to shove meat down their throats. Because they're, they're still in that natural stage of thought, if you will. They haven't grown enough to get to that point. They're babes. And he's saying, you should have grown out of that already in chapter 5 of Hebrews, but you haven't. You need more milk. That's the same thing that the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, the mature, they're able to judge all things, he says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians and in verse 15. Same thing in Hebrews 5. He's able to discern these things. He's able to see them for what they really are, in accuracy and in truth. Why? Because he's not unskilled, he's skilled. And so while he's contrasting the carnal and spiritual, I want to impress you with the fact that while in parts of chapter 1 especially, he's talking about people who never accepted Christ to begin with, he's doing that to impress the Corinthians with the fact that they're acting just like those people who rejected the gospel in the first place. The difference is you accepted it and now you're not able to accept any more of it because you're still a babe. And he doesn't just say you're still a babe and that's okay because at least you're a Christian. He progresses in his description of who they are. Yes, they're a babe, 
but they're carnal. They're not spiritual. He says in verse 1, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. And notice what he says next. As to babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it. And so he alludes to their beginning as Christians here in this first section of chapter 3. And he calls them not spiritual, but carnal. And the reason he calls them not spiritual, but carnal is not because they're hedonistic. He's not talking about them being immoral people who don't have any concern whatsoever for the spiritual. He's calling them carnal and not spiritual because they're babes in Christ. In chapter 2, in verse 6, remember, he speaks wisdom to those who are mature. In verses 14 and 15, he speaks about the spiritually discerned matters and that those who are spiritual can judge all things. And the point he's making in chapter 3 and verse 1 is if I gave you certain parts of the gospel that are a little more weighty and meaty, you would not be able to properly discern them. You would not be able to properly judge them. And it would actually be detrimental to your growth in Christ rather than help you grow in Christ. I couldn't speak to you as the spiritual people because you are babes in Christ. And he's not condemning this state, by the way. In those first few parts of chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, he's talking about his original coming to them. In chapter 4, he'll talk about being a father to them in Christ, how he established the church at Corinth. They're new Christians, and he's not bashing them for it. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite. I can't expect you to be ready for this yet. But then he switches gears, doesn't he? He switches gears and he says, even now, you're not able to receive it. Even now. Someone says, well, how much time has to elapse? That is not a pertinent question. Elapsed time means growth must occur. And so, at the beginning of your walk with Christ there are things you aren't able to digest that even a week from then you should be able to digest. It may not be much more meaty, but it is meatier. He says, even now you are not able to receive it. And he tells them why. For you are still carnal. You were carnal back here and I understood it, but you're still carnal now? we got to lay all these foundations again. we got to bring you up out of places you should have never been if you would have grown. For were there an envy and strife and divisions among you? Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? You're a Christian now and you're still behaving like a mere man. You're not able to receive the weightier things of the gospel because you haven't grown at all. And now there's need for repair. But I want to impress you furthermore with a contrast we see there. He contrasted the carnal and the spiritual, the babes and the mature, the natural and the spiritual. There's even in this section a contrast to between, between levels of carnality. He says there in chapter 3 in verse 1, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. He says, as to babes in Christ. Every single babe in Christ is carnal. There's no question about it. Paul's saying it right here. If you have just obeyed the gospel, you're not mature. You're not that spiritual man of chapter 2 and 3. You're carnal. And, and it's not that you should be reprimanded for that. It's We can't expect anything less. You just started. Your mind is not going to be immediately renewed. That's a process. So you're going to have some of the same thought processes coming into this. You're going to have to break bad habits. You're going to have to learn some things in a different way. So he calls them carnal, but he calls them carnal with this word. 
sarkinos. And what vine says is that sarkinos means is consisting of flesh. And I added merely, because that's essentially what it means. Merely consisting of flesh. And so some translations, in fact, um, say fleshy. That's the idea of it. You just consist of flesh. You're fleshy. Enos, the suffix, means made of. So you're made of flesh. Sarx is the root. And so he calls them carnal as babes in Christ. They're just fleshy. They, they haven't really grown and transcended to that state of being really more than just a mere man. Yes, they're a Christian, but they've got a long way to go. They're not much different than they were yesterday. They are drastically different, but in a way, they're not much different than they were yesterday before they got wet and they had their sins washed away. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Yes, old things have passed away and all things have become new. We're not knocking that. Paul's not saying that. You're still a Christian. You're new, but you're carnal. You're still fleshy. You still think the same way that you thought yesterday. We're trying to get you out of that. In chapter 5 of Hebrews in verse 13, as we read, those people who only partake of milk are babes and they only partake of milk because they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's really what is indicative of fleshiness. You're, you're not much more than just a man. You, you aren't trained in the gospel, which brings you out of being merely a man and into a, a greater spiritual way of living. But be impressed by what we read in 2 Peter 3 and verse 16. To be unskilled is not to bring fault upon the person who is unskilled if they're a babe, because we can't expect anything less. They just started. But to remain unskilled is to remain in a state of instability and is to use what is pure and good in the gospel in a way that can destroy you. And that's what Peter mentions with those false teachers, that some uh, of these people take those hard sayings of Paul, these people being untaught and unstable, they twist it to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scriptures. At one point in time, it wasn't their fault necessarily that they were unskilled. But after so much time, it was, and it led to great damage as they mishandled the gospel. This is why in Matthew 28, Jesus did not just say, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, but teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. You know, There's a lot of churches who think they're doing good because they're just adding to the number endlessly. They baptize people every single Sunday, and then they don't talk to them ever again. And they wonder why they stop coming. They wonder why they don't improve because they need to be taught. They're still carnal. And we need to be impressed with that. There's a lot of change in baptism, but not the change that is necessary to be like Christ. Not yet. That's a process. They need teaching. Jesus impressed His disciples in John 15 and verse 2 with this, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may be bear more fruit. That's that process. you got to keep cutting off the bad and keep adding on the good. Letting the good grow in place of that void that was cut off. It's not just something that happens overnight. It's not just something right when you come up out of the water. It's a process. He calls them babes who are still carnal. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul puts it this way. In contrast to those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, he says, he says, um, or the Gentiles, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard from Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. And he's talking to Christians here. Remember that. He's telling Christians, this is what you learned in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, 
and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And he's implying by those words that it's not finished yet. If anything, they've regressed, but that's not how you learn Christ. So you need to continue to put off that old way and put on the new way in Christ. So there's that difference. There's a contrast even in the carnality. You're carnal when you become a Christian still. You're still fleshly. You still have things that need to be changed and need to be renewed and renovated. And so Paul didn't admonish them for that at its time. But as he writes this epistle, he says, even now you're not able to receive those weightier matters. It implies that by this time, you ought to be this way, as Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5. Until now you're not able to receive it is not an admonition. It's not a condemnation of their character. It's saying a babe in Christ is what a babe in Christ is. And, and they got to start from scratch. But until now, or even now, that implies negligence. Even now. By this time, it shouldn't be the case, but it is. Even now, you can't receive it. Where he used the Greek word sarkinos before, he uses the Greek word sarkikos in chapter 3 and verse 3. But, or 4, you are still carnal. And the difference is that ending. Ekos, or enos, means made of. Ekos means characterized by. And so Vine says it means associated with or pertaining to the flesh, carnal. That's why the New American Standard Bible renders it not men of flesh, but fleshly. And so even as a babe in Christ, you may be fleshy, but you may not be fleshly because you're trying to get rid of that. You're trying to grow out of that. You're not pursuing it. But an individual who is fleshy and does not grow into a spiritual person turns into being fleshly, characterized now, not by Christ, not by the fruit of the Spirit, not by the transformative power of the Gospel, but by that old life of living according to the flesh. Linsky puts it this way in his commentary, At one time in their early days, they were sarkinos. They could then not help it. They were fleshy and hard in mind and life, and yet giving promise that they would soon outgrow that stage. But something has interfered with their development. Paul finds that they are now sarkikos, fleshly, People who ought to obey the true spiritual norm and yet by a choice of their own obey the norm of the flesh. And the difference between the two terms is fleshy and you cannot help it and fleshly and you can but do not help it. I.e. negligence. Not growing. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, Peter said this after he encouraged them to take of the pure milk of the Word that they may grow thereby Evidently, he had to say that because they hadn't been doing it at the time. So he admonishes them in chapter 4. The one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, verse 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And he says this in verse 3. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Enough is enough. And that's the difference. A carnal... Babe in Christ is carnal because hasn't had time to grow. But essentially what should be said at the point of baptism, that act of devotion and, and that pursuit of righteousness is enough is enough. I don't want this anymore. And you're going to have to have some time to get out of it completely, but enough is enough. I'm fleshy, but not fleshly. And here's some people who are fleshy and they never grew. And so all that could happen is for them to be inundated with these false concepts, with these unspiritual notions, 
and so they became fleshly. And that's exactly what he t- talks about. That's, that's exactly what he highlights and he turns to, that they had become, again, like mere men. You should be closer to Christ than you were when I baptized you. You should be more spiritually minded. I should be able to speak to you the wisdom of God, but only the mature receive that. And you are not mature yet. And what that is turning into is division. It's misunderstanding and therefore mishandling the gospel of Christ. You're carnal, is what he says, still. And so I want us to be impressed then with the remainder of this lesson, the danger of staying like that. It's obvious that Paul is not saying... You were okay back then and you're still okay now. you still got time. He's reprimanding them. He's saying, you ought to have grown already. You need to study. You need to put on these things pertaining to the Spirit because there's a danger in not doing so. R.C. Trench and his synonyms of the New Testament spoke about the synonyms of sarkinos and sarkikos, the two words for carnality. And he explains with this context that they were intellectually as well as spiritually tarrying at the threshold of faith, making no progress, content to remain where they were when they might have been carried far onward by the mighty transforming powers of that Spirit freely given to them of God. He does not charge them in this word, sarkinos, that is, as a babe, with being anti-spiritual, but only with unspiritual, being flesh and little more when they might have been much more. You, You see the significance of that? There may be carnal people here this morning. But what we're not suggesting in saying that is that you're anti-spiritual. If you're anti-spiritual, you wouldn't be here. It's not that you're anti-spiritual. The danger is that you're unspiritual and you could become anti-spiritual if you don't grow out of that unspiritual state. In the sense of not having this spiritually trained mind, but just being one who thinks like the world thinks. You can't comprehend the gospel truths. And if you can't digest that and you try to, what's going to happen is you twist that and the danger of remaining as mere men is that you will take spiritual things and use them as carnal. You will take something that is meant for your salvation and as Peter mentioned in 2 Peter 3.16, because you aren't mature enough, you're not spiritual enough to really receive that and digest it, you will misunderstand it, you will twist it, and you will be destroyed. It's not an option to grow. We have to grow. This is what is at stake. This is what happened with the Corinthians. It was their view of the gospel and those who taught the gospel and preached the gospel that was the problem. You notice he mentioned their division, I'm of Paul and another I'm of Apollos. He mentioned that first back in chapter 1. He said, it's been reported to me that some of you say, I am of Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or Christ. Is Christ divided? He says, They were behaving like mere men. But why were they dividing? They weren't just dividing to divide. There was something at the root of this problem. There was a misunderstanding in their carnality of that spiritual message of the cross that led them to divide amongst people who were preaching the same thing. He says in verse 17 of chapter 1, Christ Jesus didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he mentions this, not with wisdom of words, lest the message of the cross or the cross of Christ should be made no made of no effect. And he progresses with that thought in verse 20. Where is the wise and the scribe and the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Since the wisdom of God, uh, since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And here's their problem. They once accepted it as the power of God to salvation. And then they fell right back into that category of viewing Paul and Peter and Apollos as philosophers speaking something from their own wisdom. And he's stressing that's not where it came from. And we made sure it didn't come from that because then it would be impotent. It pleased God to to preach it in such a way that did not conform to the modern thought of the time, but it actually contradicted it and it appeared foolish to those people. And so their view of the gospel led to carnal actions because they viewed it as a carnal message. They viewed it as merely a philosophy of men. He, he warned in chapter 2 what would happen if they viewed it in that way. And he said, this is why I didn't come with wisdom of words, but I preached the message of the cross, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so they may have obeyed the gospel, and they may have received it as the power of God to salvation. Certainly, they became Christians But over time, they didn't grow in the gospel. They fell back into their old ways of viewing it in this context of philosophy. And they viewed Paul as an Aristotle instead of an apostle of Christ, Christ speaking through him. They viewed Apollos as a philosopher and not as one who was hiding behind the gospel of Christ. And I want to stress that it wasn't Paul's fault and it wasn't Apollos' fault. When he talks about planting the seed and watering the seed and God gives the increase, and he's talking about Paul laying the foundation and Apollos building on it, he's stressing the fact that they're preaching the same message, yet you're divided among them. And it's because you're viewing the gospel as man's wisdom, and they as the originators of that wisdom. And so Paul is better than Apollos, or Apollos is better than Paul. And now you're at war with one another because you've taken a message which was intended for unity, and harmony in the body. And as you viewed it through a carnal lens, because you were natural and you were carnal, you were fleshy, it has turned into fleshliness as you've divided amongst yourselves. They've warped something that was good into their own destruction. Why? They didn't grow. And he's not saying you're an elder and you should have grown. You're a preacher and you should have grown. You're a husband and a wife, a mother and a father, and you should have grown. Saying, you as a babe in Christ should have grown on to maturity. And because you didn't, for whatever reason, maybe you thought that it's up to everyone else, the leaders of the congregation, to interpret the gospel, to bring us truth. You, you just thought that it wasn't up to you to study hard. That, that a preacher studies every day in his office, but I'm just a regular old member, and I don't study until I get to Bible class Wednesday or Sunday. And because you didn't grow... You're acting like the world. You're behaving like mere men. You are fleshly. Brethren, that's what's at stake. If we don't go on to maturity, it's not inconsequential. It's it's not like, well, I'm a baby and I'll still be in heaven as a spiritual baby. That's not how it works. Because if you don't grow on as a baby, you die. Isn't it that way physically? If a baby does not grow by the pure milk of her mother or or, or his mother, the baby dies. And that's what happens spiritually. That's what's at stake. Growth is something essential because if we don't grow, these concepts of the gospel 
we're not going to be able to fully comprehend and we'll twist them to our own destruction. For example, grace. You know, there are some Christians who can't comprehend true biblical grace because they're thinking through this denominational perspective, this worldly perspective. Maybe there's some things they still want to do in the world, and so when they hear about the grace of God, they completely misunderstood it, and they twist it to their own destruction. They're carnal, and their fleshiness has turned into fleshliness. They say, we need to hear more sermons on grace, not all these sermons on doctrine and such. And they might appeal to a scripture like Romans 6 and verse 14. So then you are not under law, but under grace. And they don't realize what that actually means because they're carnal. They're babes. They, they haven't learned enough Scripture to comprehend that part of Romans. Because what Paul is not saying is that grace is all about not thinking about what we must do and what the gospel dictates, but just that thank God for His Son's blood and it sheds our sins, it shed and, and washes our sins away and, and, and there's nothing else. We, we're just saved by grace and thank God that we're saved because we couldn't save ourselves. That's not really what grace is about. Grace is inclusive of saving someone who can't save themselves, saving someone who doesn't deserve saving, but it's also inclusive of this transformation into maturity. And it involves law. And this not but statement is really saying we're not merely under law, but especially under grace. So under the old law, you were merely under law. So if you sin, that's it. You can't be righteous under that law. The gospel, thank goodness, is law of grace. So you sin, you violated law, that sin is real, but you can be forgiven of that sin. And you can be brought out of that so you can grow into a maturity where you don't sin as often. I think that's why James calls it in James 1 and verse 25 by inspiration, the perfect law of liberty. It's a law, but unlike the law of Moses, it's a liberating law. And someone someone says, I want to hear more sermons about grace and less about doctrine. When we preach the gospel of Christ in all the facets of doctrine we see, we're preaching grace. That's what grace is. It's God's instructing us what is wrong and what is Christ-like. And you can't know how to be like Christ by just saying, well, you're saved and, and it's about grace, so don't worry about all this. That's not what it is. God's grace transforms us. That's why he says in Titus 2 and verse 12, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and it teaches us. But if we're thinking about grace as a carnal person, as a mere man, we're not thinking about it through the spiritual lens of the gospel. You can't comprehend weighty scriptures like Romans if you're still a babe in Christ because then you'll turn grace into lewdness. And that's what's happened in the church today. Jude warns about those false teachers who are in their midst who turn the grace of God into lewdness. And that's this idea of grace that because I'm saved by grace and I can't save myself, then I may sin but still get to heaven. That's not grace. That's not what grace is. Grace is your sin is washed away, and by God's power, you can stop sinning. You can grow to a maturity where sin is few and far in between. Not sin without consequence. Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 5 and verse 13, do not use this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But that's what the carnal will do as they read about grace. Similarly, people talk about Christ's perfect life and they don't put it in its proper place, its proper perspective. Have you ever heard the phrase or said it yourself that Christ was perfect so we don't have to be? That's Calvinism. And a babe in Christ may not understand it. And and so when we try to comprehend 
what Christ did in the flesh for us, pre-sacrifice and post-resurrection in the revelation of His perfect life, they won't be able to comprehend that it's not a substitute for our life. It's a pattern for us to live by. Yeah, Christ was perfect so He could be the perfect example for us to follow, not as a substitute for us. But there are Christians who believe that. I want to tell you, if you believe that, you're wrong. And it's dangerous. We need to grow out of that. We need to make sure that the way we're viewing Christ is not that His life was a substitute for us. You will find no Scripture that says Christ lived perfectly so you don't have to worry about living right. But His death is substitutionary. In Romans 5 and verse 8 it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That word for is in place of, instead of, so you don't have to. When it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, He's speaking about a sin sacrifice, bearing the the weight of the punishment of sin so that we don't have to die. Which is exactly what Isaiah 53 is all about. He was wounded for our transgressions. It doesn't say He was guilty by our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him and by His stripes we are healed. He died for us, but He didn't live so that we didn't have to live a certain way. He lived to be the perfect sacrifice and the perfect example that we have to follow. And when someone who has not grown to the maturity of appreciating that tries to grapple with the perfect life of Christ and how it relates to us, too often it turns into a reduction of responsibility. He did it, so I don't have to. And you know what? The Calvinists will interpret Jesus' words on the cross, it is finished, as it is finished for everyone. No one has to worry about righteousness anymore. That's not what he's saying. What was necessary for them to be saved is finished. There are brethren who believe in this image of God looking down on us as Christians and we are covered by the umbrella of Christ's righteousness. And so when we sin, God can't see our sin. He sees Christ's perfection. That's not scriptural. And if it sounds good to you, you probably need to grow. We need to grow. Because this is what's at stake. You know, two other things very quickly. Those other two things were on doctrine, but, but what about some of the practices that we involve ourselves in? Some people conflate edification with emotion. And so they talk about being edified as they leave the potluck that happened after church. Well, I was really edified being with my brethren today. You mean at worship? No, we, we had a good visit at the table. That's not edification. Edification has nothing to do with emotion. In fact, emotion may be there, but it is a product of edification. It's the joy that Billy preached on this morning. That's that emotion that comes from learning of God's Word. In Ephesians 5 and verse 17 and 18, he says, Don't be unwise, but understand the will of the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit. That is, the Spirit's teaching His Word. That's edification. And that's what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. When he's speaking about spiritual gifts, the reason why he's saying prophecy is better than tongue speaking is because tongue speaking is nonsensical without without an interpreter. If you don't know Spanish, and I'm talking in Spanish, you're getting nothing out of this lesson. But if I'm speaking your language, which is what prophecy was, it was inspired speaking, but it didn't need interpretation, then you understand, and that's edification. And we need to realize that. Because if we don't realize that and we're viewing this concept of edification and we're viewing it in this carnal way, this immature way, this fleshy way, 
then we're going to make an excessive appeal to emotion. Emotion becomes our standard. And that's what we're talking about when we say emotionalism. We're not saying emotion is bad. But emotionalism is that emotions are the standard. And I want to tell you that James tells us it's worldly wisdom. That wisdom that is worldly is earthly and sensual and demonic. Wisdom that comes from your feelings is not from God. Edification is based on the message of the cross. And lastly, what about worship? You know, there are too many Christians who think of worship as something to be observed and not participated in. And so they take that passive approach to worship. And that's when you start hearing things like, you know, this needs to be more enjoying or enjoyable. We need to spice things up a bit. It's too bland here. We're not really engaging in worship. We're not really benefiting from worship. It's it's just too boring. We need to liven things up a bit. And and again, back to that quote from before, it's not that they're anti-spiritual. They're just unspiritual. They don't get it. But what unspiritual leads to is being anti-spiritual. So how are we going to spice it up? Let's dim the lights and appeal to our mood. Let's bring in some instruments to move us further in our music. You name it. And that's where the institutional churches have gone. They've appealed through carnal mind to denominationalism, not realizing that worship isn't an observational thing. It's a participatory thing. And it's not about us. It's about God. Which is why He dictates what is worship in spirit and in truth. In worship, everyone should be involved. Which is why he says we should speak to one another in these psalm sins and spiritual songs. Even what we're doing now is not supposed to be observational. It's supposed to be like with the Bereans in Acts 17.11 who search the Scriptures and finds out whether these things are so. If preaching God's Word is not worship, I don't know what is. But if I'm the only one doing anything, if Billy's the only one doing anything, are you worshiping? It's not observational. Is your mind engaged? Are you being changed? as we're listening to the Word of God. I know that worship can be enjoyed. I've said often, I enjoyed worship today. I enjoy being with the brethren and worshiping God. But we've got to realize that's not its purpose. We're going to enjoy being in fellowship with God for eternity in heaven. That's going to be enjoyable, I think. But the purpose is to glorify Him for eternity. That's the purpose we're doing today. The purpose for worship is glorifying God, which takes sacrifice of ourselves takes focus away from ourselves. It's not about entertainment, but it's about praise. It's about magnifying His name. And so you can take this idea and apply it to anything. But suffice it to say, growth isn't an option because if we don't grow, we die. If we don't grow what is good for us, we twist and make it bad for us. There's so much at stake here. It's okay to be carnal when you come up out of the water, but it's not okay to stay there. You should come out on an upward projection, never turning back. And you can only grow by the Word of Christ. Study it, read it, pray about it, engage in it, ask about it, be involved in it. And we'll go on from becoming or being like mere men to becoming like sons of God, as God intended. But the first step is obedience to the Gospel. You've got to take that step. You know, some people, they put off obeying the gospel because they're afraid that, you know, I'm just not going to be good enough for whatever. Well, Paul is not saying you should be here already. He's saying back then when you were obedient to the gospel, you were carnal. I'm not knocking you for that. God doesn't expect an immediate change. He expects a start. 
And by His grace, you'll get there. And, and so you can't get there without starting the race. We invite you to do that this morning. And if there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.